Well, before we get into Psalm 127 this morning, let's pray once more together. Heavenly Father, on this Father's Day, it's an unparalleled joy that we have to call you by that name, to call you Father, the perfect Father we've always longed for and we've always desperately needed. And even those of us who had the best earthly fathers uh, just offer a taste of what it means to be your daughters and sons loved by you. So our hearts overflow with gratitude today for the fact that this day reminds us not only to be thankful for and to honor our earthly fathers, but even more so to overflow with peace and gratitude that we get a call and cry, Abba, Father, to you. There are so many things we're thankful for as your children. Thank you for adopting us, for making your heart our home, for making Jesus our righteousness, for your sovereignty, providing our sanity. Thank you for freeing us from our slavery to fear and foolishness and our orphan-like ways. Thank you for giving us the spirit of sonship, the Holy Spirit who indwells us and gives us a secure place in your family and a future in the new heavens and new earth beyond all imagination. Thank you for being the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort in every season of our life. Thank you for promising to complete the good work that you began in us, for disciplining us in your love, never shaming us or condemning us or withdrawing from us. And Father, thank you for the grace that you have given us even to forgive our earthly fathers, those who didn't love us as you intended, including those who broke our trust in hearts. Continue to heal us, redeem us from those stories, and free us to parent and grandparent to your glory, to put new patterns of mercy and grace into our family's heritage. And Father, lastly, we thank you for the spiritual dads that you've given to us, those gospel fathers who help us to know you better and grow in grace and live for your glory. Your generosity is beyond all measure, and you're such a good father to us all the time in every way. So we thank you and praise you in Jesus' merciful name. Amen. Amen. Well, that prayer is written by Scotty Smith, who is a pastor in the Nashville area, and I thought I would pray it together uh, with us this morning as he reminds us not only to be thankful and to pray for and honor our earthly fathers on this Father's Day, but also to do so in worship of our Heavenly Father. So we're going to look at Psalm 127 this morning. We're going to take a little break from Joseph to uh, talk to fathers on Father's Day. And I know that most of you here this morning are godly fathers. You're fathers who desire to love God and love your children well. And on behalf of our pastors, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for doing uh, what so many don't do which is uh, be a, a good, stable, godly, consistent father in the lives of your children. You know, you're, you're a rare breed, and you're growing more rare. In 1960, only 10% of children were raised without a father in the home, and today it's somewhere around 40%. Study after study empirically demonstrates that dads play an extremely important role in a child's well-being and success. Below, I just want to list a few studies that show exactly how much a father's influence that they have in their children's lives, and I could give you other details, but, these, but I'll just suffice it with the headlines. Children with fathers are less likely to live in poverty. Children with fathers do better in school. Children without fathers are more likely to do jail time. Children with fathers are less likely to abuse drugs and alcohol. Children without fathers are more likely to be sexually active as teenagers. Children without fathers are more likely to be obese. Children with fathers are more likely to have a large vocabulary. Children with fathers are more likely to be encouraged to take healthy risks. Children with fathers gain many additional benefits to health and happiness. 
the Grant study, which is the longest longitudinal study ever done on the lives of men, found that a man's father influenced his life in many ways exclusive to his relationship with his mother. Loving fathers imparted to their sons more enjoyment of family vacations, greater likelihood of being able to use humor as a healthy coping mechanism, better adjustment to and contentment with life after retirement, less anxiety and fewer physical and mental symptoms under stress in young adulthood. In the negative column, it was, quote, not the men with poor mothering, but the ones with poor fathering who were significantly more likely to have poor marriages over their lifetimes. Men who lacked a positive relationship with their fathers were also much more likely to call themselves pessimists and to report having trouble letting others get close to them, end quote. So if there was ever any doubt in your mind, fathers matter a lot, a lot. When it's all said and done, a man's relationship with his father very significantly, according to this study, predicted his overall life satisfaction at age 75. Quote, a variable not even suggestively associated with the maternal relationship, end quote. Dads, you matter. And so knowing that I am speaking to godly dads, for the most part, my aim this morning is to encourage you. Because if fatherhood were easy, the statistics would reflect something different. But fatherhood's tough. It's hard. And so if you're a weary dad this morning, Psalm 127 has a ton of encouragement for you this morning. And I hope you'll receive it as from the Lord. But you may be here this morning and and you can't say with any integrity that you fall into that category. Say, I don't don't really think I'm... I'm, I'm doing that well as a dad. You might be delinquent in your responsibilities or, or unfaithful to your calling in fatherhood. Well, if so, let me, let, me, let me remind you, first of all, of a father's calling. So we're going to look at two points this morning. I'm getting to Psalm 127 in just a second. But my goal is to give you grace this morning, to give you comfort. But you know the way that the Bible pursues your comfort? By crushing you first. That's how the Bible comforts us. It holds up the law and all the standard of what we're to be and do, and we realize how, fall, how short we fall, and then God in his grace comes and comforts us after he's broken us. That's the way the Bible operates, brokenness and then healing. But we have to be reminded of our responsibilities if we're going to be broken sufficiently. So I want to spend a few minutes before we get into Psalm 127 this morning talking about a father's calling, and then we're going to come to a father's comfort. I've got seven things here. This isn't all that the Bible says about fatherhood. That's many, many sermons. I'm just going to give a summary of seven things a father's calling is according to Scripture. Number one, and we're going to look at verses for each one of these quickly. Number one, teaching. Teaching. Psalm 78, 5 through 8. He established, talking about God, God established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God and keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So what God's discipleship program, first and foremost, is the home. 
with fathers acting as the chief pastor in the life of their children who passes on the word of God to them. And the purpose being that that teaching would then turn them in from to, to worship, stop worshiping themselves and start worshiping God. Because dads, in case you haven't figured this out, you're parenting worshipers. This is what Psalm 78 understands. It says that God established this law and then he gave it to, the, to fathers so that they would teach it to their next generation. Why? Psalm 78 verse 7 says, we teach so that the next generation would set their hope in God. Because they're already born setting their hope in things, and they're going to grow up setting their hope in things. But what the Father is there to do is to direct them to set their hope in God. They're not defaulting to that. They're going to have to have your instruction to do that, to set their hope in God. Because you are parenting a worshiper. So it's important to remember that what rules your child's heart, what he, is, he or she is setting their hope in, will control their behavior. The goal of parenting is not behavior modification or behavior control. It's worship alteration. While authority is necessary and beautiful and protective when it's godlike, the goal is not to control your kid's behavior. It's to see their heart changed. And by virtue of that, their life changed. And their heart gets changed when they set their hope in God. So that's the first one, teaching. Number two, modeling. Modeling. Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, dads. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. That's modeling. That is the things that we are passing on to our children, the hope in God that we hope that they will embrace is modeled by us throughout our lives. This is why Deuteronomy 6, God says, These things shall be on your heart first, and then you shall teach them diligently to your children. Because if you don't, it's hypocrisy. You can't call your children to set hope in a God that you're not hoping in. But you teach them diligently out of a heart that loves the Lord. And this is pervasive all throughout your life so that when you're sitting in your house or you're walking by the way, kids can see it on the doorpost of the house. They're surrounded by this modeling of love for God and hope in God. So that's number two, modeling. Number three, encouraging. Encouraging. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Colossians 3.21, Paul writes a similar verse. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So in Ephesians 6, he says, don't provoke them. Colossians 3, he says, don't provoke them. And then he tells us how. By bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the, of the Lord, which means, according to Colossians 3, bringing them up in a way that they're not discouraged. So it's an encouraging call. It's a call to encouragement. If you don't want to provoke your children to anger, be the chief encourager of your children. That's how you avoid getting their anger, is by being an encouraging father. So we got teaching, we got modeling, we got encouraging. Number four, 
loving. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So when God looks at us as we live our lives in this fallen world with remaining sin living in us, he looks down at us and he, what does he think about? He says, those are my children. They're dust. They're weak. Their frame is mortal. And what does this verse say that the father, how does the father respond to that? He has compassion on us because of our condition as frame-bearing dust. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So it assumes that we as earthly fathers will show compassion to our children because we know their frame. We know they're weak. No parent gives mercy better than the one who is convinced he or she desperately needs it himself. If you, if you know God's compassion for you, if you know that his, he remembers your frame and that you're dust and he shows compassion to you in that condition, the Bible assumes that you will show that same compassion to your children as well. So that's number four, loving. So we've seen teaching, modeling, encouraging, loving. Number five, three more. Number five, giving. Giving generously. Matthew 7, 9 through 11, Jesus says, of which one of you, if his son asks for bread, so he's talking to dads here to think like a dad, which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So again, he's drawing an earthly analogy, and he says, look, Just like we saw in Psalm 103 with the father showing compassion to his children, so God shows compassion to us. Here it says, look, I'm like a good earthly father, Jesus says. If you ask me for good gifts, if you ask me another passage for the Holy Spirit, I'm going to give him to you because I'm a good father. Like a father who, if his son came up and asked him for bread, doesn't go say, son, just go pick up a rock outside and try to chew on that for a little while. Say, that's not a generous dad. Or, uh, Dad, I'd really like a fish. Here's a snake. How about that instead? No, the assumption that Jesus makes is if your son asks for bread, he's going to give you bre- you're going to get bread. If your son asks you for fish, you're going to give him fish. Why? Because you give to your children. You love them. You care for them. Your, your joy is to give good gifts to them. And so if a father gives to his children. Number six, disciplining. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, they our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us, talking about God, for our good so that we may share in his holiness. So again, there's the contrast in Hebrews 12. You have a father disciplining and God disciplining. And the writer is comparing God's discipline to our discipline and saying that a father disciplines his children. And then finally, number seven, exhorting or challenging. 
1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12. For you know how, Paul says, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's our job description, dads. That's what, on the last day, our Lord Jesus will speak to us about. Part of this. If you're a father, your calling is to teach, to model, to encourage, to love, to give, to discipline, and to exhort. How are you feeling this morning? How are you feeling this morning? I want you, I want you to feel that. I want you to feel the weight of that. I want you to feel the responsibility of that. I want you to feel the call of that, the high, high, holy calling of fatherhood. I want you to feel that. But there's a way to respond to that call, and there's a way to not respond to that call. And that's what I want to spend the rest of the sermon talking about. Because some of you dads are go-getters. You're just, okay, I see what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to go do it. That's what God tells me to do. I'm going to go do it. And I heard a, several years ago, some of you all know that I, I taught for Davis County Public Schools for about 10 years. And before we would do the launch of school, we would have, have an in-service day where they'd do some theme and we'd have some sort of rally to get us ready to head back to school. And I can remember one pretty vividly. We had a video uh, shared with us from uh, you know, NASCAR great and Owensboro native Daryl Waltrip. And Daryl was on the video, and he was speaking to us, and he was, he was holding up a, a, a little thing, and I'll tell you what it is in a second, but he was holding it up, and he was saying, this little piece right here is the difference in whether you win a race or not. He said, you could have the best driver, the best pit and crew team, you could have the best you know, dr- uh, driver, you could have the best sponsors behind you, everything. But if you don't have this, you're gonna, you could lose the race. And he was holding up a lug nut. He says, if you go into pit and they're changing a tire and they leave a lug nut off, it doesn't matter how good your driver is, how much sponsors you have, how fast your car goes, or how, how, how in, how, what place you are currently in the race. You left the lug nut off. It's the one piece that is necessary. And his point was, Don't miss the necessary things. Listen, Psalm 127 is your lug nut, dads. If you miss Psalm 127, you will wreck your home and your children. But the way, because it talks about the difference between parenting in vain, that's the language it uses, or not in vain. So there are two different ways we can approach parenting. One is in vain and one is not in vain. And I hope that all of us are saying, well, I don't want to parent in vain. Let me give you an illustration of the, of the differences, and then we're going to come to Psalm 127. In Isaiah chapter 30, we read the following in verses 15 and 16. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. Listen to this. These are two paths to take. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. You hear that? Repentance and rest. 
That's my salvation. Quietness and trust, that's my strength. But you said, Israel responded to God when God told them that, you said you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses. We're going to rely on our horses. And God says, therefore, you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. You get the difference? See, we can say, okay, I hear that list. I hear teaching, modeling, encouraging, so on. I hear all that. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. Get the horses. Let's go. Let's do this. And God says, okay, you can try that. It's not going to work. Or you can say, wait, the Lord longs to be gracious to me. He rises up early in the morning to show me compassion. Mercy is meeting me as I get out of bed in the morning. In repentance and rest is my salvation. In quietness and trust is my strength. That's what Psalm 27 is all about. Psalm 27 is trying to get us off the horse and on to rest, on to repentance, on to salvation, on to quietness, on to trust, on to strength. Pete Scazzaro summarizes Isaiah 30 with the following words. He says, God offered this promise to be gracious to his people Israel when they found themselves threatened with the invasion of a serious conquering army an army that had already overwhelmed the nations around them. Instead of trusting in God for salvation and strength to face the Assyrians, the Israelites became impatient and relied on their horses and chariots, the glamour weapons of that day. They chose short-term relief and a quick fix. As a result, they fled, making a series of bad decisions with destructive long-term consequences. And then he concludes with the following. It's a temptation we too often succumb to today when we are fearful. Instead of waiting for God to act, we take matters into our own hands. We make decisions without consulting God or others, and we make assumptions about God without checking them out. Yet God invites us to wait for him and rest in his love, allowing him to guide us in our decisions each day. And so those are the two options in front of us. And I want to spend the rest of the sermon looking at Psalm 127 and calling us to the vision of fatherhood, dads, that Psalm 27 lays in front of us. So we don't have to waste our time on horses and resting in our own strength and relying on our own power to do what only God can do in us and for us. So three things this morning to comfort us in our fatherhood. So we've looked at seven aspects of a father's calling. Now we're going to look at three aspects from Psalm 127 of a father's comfort. Here's the first one. It's in verse 1. Let's read it. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So here's number one from verse one. Acknowledging our dependence on God. Acknowledging our dependence on God. Listen, God never calls you, Dad, to a task like fatherhood, without going with you and giving you what you need to do it. He never calls you to parent 
without being with you as you parent. If we are going to parent, we have to have God continually parenting us. We can never outgrow our children in that sense. We have to be the littlest child in the house who is constantly looking to our dad to take care of us, to hold us up, to strengthen us, to give us the grace we need to be who we're called to be. You're going to have to get low, dads. Acknowledge continually and regularly that you depend on God. Trust that the decisive effects of your protecting and your building of your house is not up to you. And can't, you can build a physical house. You can't build a spiritual house. We must build and protect restfully, dependently on God. And that sh- that's meant to be encouraging. Why do I say that's encouraging? Because God wants to build our house. God wants to work in our families. And he says in verse 1 of Psalm 127, Solomon writes that unless the Lord builds the house, we're going to build it in vain. So don't build it in vain. Rely on the Lord. Don't watch over the city. You can stay up all night. Keep looking out over the horizon for any invading armies. Depriving yourself of sleep. But unless the Lord is guarding that city, it's going down. Doesn't matter how many watchmen you put on the walls. No matter how many skilled craftsmen you have working on the house. Doesn't matter. Unless God builds it. Unless God watches over it. We do it all in vain. God never calls us to a task without giving us the grace we need to do it. But we have to acknowledge our dependence on him. And that's, that's not in vain. It's not in vain. So that's the first one. That's our first comfort, dads. Acknowledging our dependence on God. You need God to teach. You need God to model. You need God to encourage. You need God to love you. If you're going to love your kids, you need God to give to you. If you're going to give to your children, you need God to discipline you. If you're going to discipline your children, you need God to exhort and challenge you. If you're going to exhort and you're challenge your children, you have to be connected in dependence and reliance exclusively and completely on God. And that's what Psalm 127 lays out for us because in repentance and rest is our salvation and quietness and trust is our strength. Recognizing, you have to, see, recognizing what you're able to do and what you're not able to do is essential to good parenting. Resting in God's grace, dads, far from making you lax and slacker in your approach, will fill you with empowerment and joy, enabling you to be the kind of father that God is to you. Because your, your, your deepest need, dads, my deepest need as a dad, is to enjoy Jesus. That's our deepest need. Enjoying Jesus is the greatest gift we can give to our children. And then enjoying their moms. As you treasure the gospel, you will teach it to your children and make sure they hear it week in and week out. Not because they have to, but because you love the gospel. 
you want your children exposed to the gospel because you love the gospel. And you'll try to live it out by practicing grace and pointing them to the forgiveness that Christ offers when they fail because you are relying on the same grace and forgiveness of Christ when you fail. And you'll point them to the strength of Christ when they're weak because you're relying on the same strength of Christ when you're weak. And when you sin against them, you'll seek their forgiveness just like you sin against God and seek His. You'll be patient, slow to anger, and persevering through disappointment because God's that way with you. While you give your time to your children and pour in buckets of encouragement in their lives just like God does to you. So that's acknowledging our dependence on God. Number two, embracing the reality that God loves us. So we acknowledge something, and now we embrace something. We acknowledge our dependence on God, and we embrace the reality that God loves us. Look at verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Do you get get the argument there? Let Let me read it again. Think with me here. It's in vain, God says to dads who are working really, really hard to raise their families and build their house on the Lord. He says it's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, that you put in these 20-hour days. It's in vain if you do that. Why is it in vain? Eating the bread of anxious toil, just got to keep going, got to keep going, got to keep doing, got to keep doing, got to keep producing, got to keep making it happen. For, here's the argument, he gives, God gives to his beloved sleep. You see, if you're acknowledging your dependence on God, you can go to bed. But the reason that some of us can't go to bed or can't get the sleep we need is because we're racked with worry, we're racked with fear, we're racked with anxiety. And why are you racked with fear, worry, and anxiety? Because fundamentally, you don't believe that God loves you. That's what it says. If you don't believe that God loves you, and you don't believe he wants to build your house, and you don't believe he's committed to doing good to you all the days of your life, then you've got to be the one to make that happen. Because nobody's going to love me if I don't love me. Nobody's going to love my kids if I don't love my kids. No, God loves your kids more than you love your kids. So it's in vain, he says, that you rise up early and go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil. So what would in vain parenting look like? It's all up to me. If it's going to be, it's going to be me. I've got to get up early. Nothing wrong with getting up early. All right? That's not, don't miss the point here. Don't miss the point. We're called to a life of responsibility before God, but we're called to live that life in a certain way. This is not about getting up early and staying up late. Good dads do that. All right? It's not saying if you ever get up early, if you ever go to bed late, you're an anxious, sinful dad who doesn't trust God. That's not the point. Don't miss the point. All right? The point is that you are that way continually if you're not looking to God to build your house. You may not be looking to God to build your house. Acting as if it all depended on me, rising up early, going late to, bre- uh, late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. 
Here's the point. If you are not resting for your identity and hope and joy completely in Christ as a parent, you will seek to suck that identity from your kids. They must be a certain way, do a certain thing, act certain ways, or it will reflect poorly on me. You see, that's an identity shift. You shifted it from where it's supposed to be, God and his grace in the gospel, to how are my kids behaving? And that's a terrible burden to put on children. To suck your identity from them. They are not a parasite. They are an image bearer who has to get raised up, sent out, and called to live their own life. Scotty Smith, the author I read earlier in the prayer that wrote the prayer on Father's Day, writes the following in repentance about the years that he grieved and spent in pragmatic, in vain kind of parenting. He says the following as a prayer. He says, Father, I grieve the years I spent in pragmatic parenting, assuming if I prayed and parented just right, my kids would be converted at a young age, would never get into big trouble, and be protected from all harm. How naive on my part. Oh, the arrogant pride of thinking that by good parenting we can take credit for the encouraging things we see in the lives of our children. That's pride. Arrogance. To say that my kids are the way they are because of me. Arrogance. Arrogance. He says, oh, the miserable unbelief of assuming that by our bad parenting, we've marred our children forever and have limited what you'll be able to accomplish in the future. Oh, the undue pressure our children must feel when we parent more out of fear than faith, more out of rules than relationship, more out of pride than patience, more out of comparison than covenant, more out of threats than theology. Forgive us, forgive us, free us, focus us. Amen. May God help us to do that. And we'll do that by embracing the reality that God loves us. That God invites us to throw ourselves, cast ourselves completely on him. Unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Before we come to the last point, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to come back to uh, to Psalm 27 in a second, but I just feel like this is too good um, of a reminder to not not set before us this morning. Matthew 4. You know, I've been talking a lot about um, depending on God and... Acknowledging God's love for us and resting in that in order to be the kinds of parents we can be or we're called to be. And I I didn't think about this until this week, but Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and the way that Satan goes after him is by throwing three false identities at him. Because that's what Satan tries to do. He tries to get you to adopt a different identity than the one God says you are. So what he did in the garden. But this time, he comes to Jesus and he offers him three false identities. And these are the same false identities he throws at us and that can wreck our parenting. 
And I want, I want us to look at those three identities quickly. Here, here's the first temptation he throws at you. He throws at Jesus. You are what you do. You are what you do. Your worth and value comes from how you perform and produce. Look at verses 3 and 4 of Matthew. And the tempter came and said to him, if, 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 if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. What's he doing? If you're the son of God, listen, you got to go do something that proves it. It's not because God said you're the son. It's not because that's who you really are. It's because of what I say that you should do to prove it. So go do it. So produce perform. You are what you do. And Jesus answers him. He says, look, I don't listen to you. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God hadn't told me to do that. I'm not going to do that. His second temptation is you are what others think of you. See this in verse 5? Then the devil took him to the holy city and put him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God... Throw yourself down for it's written. He'll command his angels concerning you. See, they, they, they will take care of you because you're, you know, you're popular. You're known in heaven. You are what others think. And then, or on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. But Jesus said again, verse 7, again, it's written, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. He says, I'm not, I'm not what others think of me. And then finally, verse 8, you are what you have. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. See, because you are what you have. You need all this to be valuable and important. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, bracketing the passage, we have to ask this question. What enabled Jesus to answer that way? And don't say, well, he's the son of God. That's not, no, no, no. He avails himself of the exact same things that we are called to avail ourselves of, the spirit and the word. So don't, don't cop out here. This is... Devil comes to us, says, you are what you do, you are what others think, you are what you have. And what enables Jesus to stand before those assaults, those false identities, those temptations, and say, no, no, no? Well, it's what happens to him right before his temptation. And it's what happens to him right after his temptation. Look, go back to chapter 4, look the previous verse, Matthew 3, verse 17. And behold, this is after Jesus' baptism, behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God said that. God said that. This is my son. I love him. I'm pleased with him. He hasn't done any ministry. He hasn't, doesn't have anything. People, all, people don't like him. I love him. He's my son. I'm pleased with him. And then, verse 1 of chapter 4, the, then Jesus was led, led, literally driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That voice from God's, about God's love for him armed him for all the assaults of the devil. 
Because God's voice was the biggest voice in the room. And dads, God's voice has got to be the biggest voice in our life. His love has got to drown out all the condemnation, all the guilt, all the fear, all the anxiety. It's got to drown it all out because he loves you. Fathers, if we will rest in the love of God for us, we will be empowered to be the kind of fathers to our children that God is to us. Again, Scotty Smith says, Continue, God, to rescue me from relational laboring in vain, assuming a burden you never intended parents to bear. Father, only you can reveal the glory and grace of Jesus to our children. Only you can give anyone a new heart. You've called us to parent as an act of worship, to parent as unto you, not as a way of saving face, making a name for ourselves, or proving our worth. End quote. So that's number two, embracing the reality that God loves us. And in conclusion, we're going to look at the last one. Number three, let's go back to Psalm 127, look at the last three verses. Receiving children as a gift from the Lord. Receiving children as a gift from the Lord. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Why this here? Why this here? If you think about the flow of what Solomon has been saying here in 127, verse 1 and 2. He said, okay, you've got to acknowledge your dependence on God. Receive, embrace the reality that God loves you. And then you need to rethink what children are all about to begin with. He says, children are a heritage from the Lord. They're a gift. They're a reward. How's that meant to affect us? It's meant to make us grateful. What do you do with a gift? You say thank you. You don't say, oh no, they gave me a gift. How am I going to pay this person back? And the gift becomes a burden? If it becomes a burden, it's not a gift. And what God wants us to view our children as is a gift. Because what do you do with a gift? you delight in it. What do you do with a burden? You resent it. Do you see where resentment comes from? In the hearts of men and fathers? Don't don't see their kids as a gift. But if you see your kids as a gift, you delight in them. As stubborn and as difficult and as challenging as they can be at times, you delight in them. It is vital that we see our children as a gift not as an interruption to our career path, a financial burden, a life encumbrance, because if we feel that way, they'll pick up on it. We should view them as a blessing from God. And it's only that posture of receiving them as a gift from the Lord and resting in God's grace that will make us a joyful and patient parent. Let's summarize what we've seen this morning. It's intended to be encouraging. The Father's calling, dads, is to teach, to model, to encourage, to love, 
to give, to disciple, or, and to discipline, to exhort. And our comfort to do that is acknowledging our dependence on God to help us teach, to help us model, to help us encourage, to help us love, give, discipline, and exhort. To embrace the reality that God loves us and cares for us as we mess up and fumble the football and limp along in our efforts to be good and godly fathers and sin and blow it and struggle and all that doesn't change the reality that God loves us. And we receive our children as the gifts from God that they are, which will shape and influence how we teach and how we model and how we encourage and love and give and discipline and exhort. I don't know where you are this morning, but I'll tell you where my heart is. My heart's in Isaiah 30. And we're going to take the last several minutes here this morning and we're going to pray. And some of you need to deal with God. We all need to deal with God in different ways. But maybe you felt this responsibility of, you know, this call of fatherhood and been reminded again of God's high standards in his word. And I want you to be encouraged that what God wants for, what does God want from you in that moment? When you feel that burden and that challenge, go to him, pray to him, rely on him, confess again that you're, that he's your only hope. Pray, thank him for his love. Thank him for your children. Pray for your children. Pray for yourself. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Now, I haven't talked anything about how to connect those two things, really. How do we connect the calling and the comfort? How do those two go together? Is it just when I blow it, I just confess? No, I want you to do this. In repentance and rest is your salvation, and quietness and trust is your strength. Go to God continually in dependence, but never in a slavish dependence as though your dependence is earning love from him. He loves you, and let that love draw you to him in dependence, reminding, calling out to him for grace and help and strength. And here's the promise. According to, I thought of, I thought of three I'll share this. This is off the cuff. We've got five minutes, so I'm going I'm to close with this. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus is in a bad spot. He's in a lot of struggle. He's got, John the Baptist has just died. He just sent his disciples off two by two, so he's a little bit alone. He's being uh, rejected at Nazareth by his family and his close friends. I mean, it's a hard season for Jesus in ministry. And in Mark chapter 6, it describes in the first half all those hard things that Jesus is going through. His rejection at Nazareth, his, 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 the loss of John the Baptist, sending out his disciples. All this is, is, is hard. And then the last three parts of, of the last three sections of Mark 6 show three miracles. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Jesus walks on the water. And Jesus heals, begins healing people that are weak. And and as I read those chapters, or read that chapter again this past week, I saw that those miracles that Jesus does is meant to help us in our weariness, help us in our discouragement. Think about it. When he he calls the disciples, they come back, and they're on the hillside, and they're going to feed these 5,000 people. 
And the disciples are immediately anxious and fearful because all they got is a little lunchbox and how are we going to feed all these people? And Jesus says, look, give me what you have. There'll be more than enough left over. Dads, that's a good word for us. Give me what you have. Go to God with what you have. There'll be more than enough left over. He will multiply what you can do in dependence on God and resting in God's love is way more than you can do in a 24-hour day. Way, way more. That's Psalm 127. What God can produce by his grace is more than you can produce by your grit. So Jesus says, give me, give me your lunch, man. Give me your lunch. I'll feed them. And he does. Then we have the water account where the disciples are in the boat. They're facing the storm. They're scared to death. They see Jesus. Well, they see a man coming toward them. They then finally see Jesus. And then Jesus gets in the boat. The wind dies down. What's that supposed to tell us? Look, I know you're scared, but I'm with you. I'm with you. Don't be scared. I'm with you. I'm going to help you. I'm right here. And then finally, when he goes and he begins healing people, and there's this, Mark writes that there's this, there's this person that begins touching him. There's several people, and they, it talks about touching the fringe of his garment. And it mentions that, just that little detail. It's not the woman that we know of the the healing of blood, but it's, it's a different account where they're touching, touching the fringe of the garment. And I thought, just, re- just reach out and touch me. You don't need to be strong. You don't have to, like, lay hold of me with all your faith and might. All you got to do is just grab, just grab what you can grab. And my power and grace will be there for you. Brothers, dads, give Jesus what you have. There'll be more than enough left over. He's got more than sufficient grace for you. I know you're scared. He'll help you. He'll be here for you. And just reach out and touch him. You don't need to be strong. So let's do that now. Let's pray and worship team come and lead us. Father, thank you for your grace to us and the way that you parent us as our good father. Thank you for the way that you teach us the way that you encourage us, the way that you love us, the way that you give to us, the way you discipline us, the way you challenge and exhort us, you are good to us. Thank you that we can depend on you for everything that you've called us to do. You've never called us to anything to do that you won't do and go with us to perform. So help us to depend upon you in our parenting, wherever we are in that stage, whether we are newer parents on the early end of the child spectrum or whether we're grandparents at this point with raised children um, or whether we're just, we don't even have any children of our own, but we want to be a godly man. We want to be someone who depends upon you and points others in the church to your good, good fatherhood. Father, draw us close to you. Help us to embrace the reality that you love us and to receive our children as a gift from your hand and help us to parent all by grace so that you will receive all the glory from anything good that happens. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.